This is Guys Read Romance, where I, romance author Margot Radcliffe, politely strong arm my male friends into reading and chatting about romance novels with me for an uncomfortably long period of time. One, and then we're going. All right, today we are doing another interstitial where we're going to discuss last week's episode about the book An Unconditional Freedom by Alyssa Cole, read by Phil Albertson. Former interstitial podcast guest Mara, my first friend who read romance, and Gina, who is an international investigative journalist, are both back, along with new guest Hattie. Hattie is an old friend who has been a massage therapist, lived in the woods, and is the former beef ambassador of West Virginia and is generally one of the coolest people around. Also joining us is our friend Megan, who is also the coolest person around. And for the first time, we actually have Phil back to answer more of our questions about his podcast. So thank you all so much for being here. And I am ridiculously excited to talk about romance with you. Wunderbar. We're happy to be here. All right. (laughs) First of all, we have Phil here. All of us on this podcast right now went to high school together. And so (laughs) we've known each other for really just a short time because we're all very young. Um, But nonetheless, (laughs) when I called... But thank you for being willing to come back. And I, I suppose, Phil, that our first question for you is, are you ready for this? Sure. Let's do it. Great. Fantastic. So uh, I want to start with the questions for Hattie, since she is new, and Megan. Uh, what do you two normally read? Gina does not read romance. Mara reads a lot of romance. Hattie, Megan, what's your, what's your um, familiarity with the genre, if anything? Megan, was that a you go first? That was that. Um, I was thinking about this. I have been not finishing books since 1988. Um, that's when I stopped like writing book reports without having read the book. I do. <laughs> oh, I've but I've, I mean, I love reading. I'm just not good at finishing books. Um, I've always read fantasy, like junior high, I was reading fantasy, uh, Anne McCaffrey's books, and then these weird... Um, these books that were about Norse mythology that were like, they had like romance covers on them. They were like naked women in bikinis, but it was about like Norse mythology and war between the gods, but on the planet earth. Um, I've, when I was like, after I finished high school, I started reading all the books that I was supposed to have read in AP English and those writers. So that's been going on for like 20 years. Um, <laughs> so you're just like reading Thomas Hardy for no reason. Well, I started with John Steinbeck because I never, I still never read Of Mice and Men, but that like changed my life actually. And then what did I read the la- over the last couple of summers? I read Toni Morrison. I read Octavia Butler in 19, wait, really recently. No, in 2019, I read all of Twilight and Harry Potter as a full grown adult. <laughs> I felt like a creep actually reading Twilight. <laughs> <laughs> is significantly better than the other. <laughs> oh man. What did you think of Twilight, Hattie? I couldn't put it down. It was so weird. <laughs> so you finished all of the Twilight. All movies. of them. Well, maybe not the very last one. How many are there? I read three of them. Is that all of them? Was it did when you imagine what a vampire looked like with glitter, <laughs> glittery vampire? Did it? Did you see the movie and did it deliver on that? I never did watched the like, movies. I've only seen like. Oh, what? Movies. <laughs> you gotta watch the movie. They shimmer in the sun, oh. Hattie. 
Shimmer in the sun. That's amazing. And um, she's so clumsy. How do you get the effect of someone being just so clumsy if you're not looking at the movie? It's I've watched that scene when they're like running in the baseball game when they're like, but like the behind the scenes footage of them running in for the baseball game over and over again. Um. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but I've, I don't think I've ever read romance. But then at the same time, when I think about it, I think that I have memories of like the reading of romance, like the stories of it, but I'm not sure if, if I've made that up for myself, um, but I've always read fantasy and I still, I love to read fantasy and fiction. Well, fantasy has a, oftentimes romance in it, but though it's not the central um, one. Well, anyway, okay. Anyway, I think it does feel, are you giving me a look, Phil, that like, you know, fantasy- Well, it depends be- whether you're like, like we're in the season of like worshiping Tolkien, you know, in light of Amazon's failure to adapt and, Tolkien would be like, I mean, no, but what everybody that followed him, everybody that followed him, particularly the Americans, it's one of the things that was added. Um, yeah. Almost always is a romantic element because mm-hmm. because not everybody is an Oxford linguist, right? So, is Lord of the Rings classified as purely fantasy, or is it a little? Is I mean, it like he, science? No. It, and I mean, it, he would have said it was like a reinvention of like. Eurocentric folklore. I mean, he wouldn't have called it Eurocentrism. He would have called it something that a colonizer would call it. I, you know, and I love Tolkien, but like the thing is what the thing is. Um, yep. He would have said that it was something to sort of underscore the centrality of these stories that we've been telling and retelling in all these different societies, but he wasn't as aware of the other societies. So he retold the one that was the sort of Nordic European version. And then everybody works off of it, basically. Um, since the 20th century mm. and adds romance and adds modern notions of politics usually but he was much more trying to like work out his PTSD by retelling folk tales well look if we like drop genre for a second right like the obvious joke to be made here that actually I think is a point Phil made in his podcast too is that most of us would okay, say yeah. romance is a hey, fantasy oh, right <laughs> there's a there's a meta equation happening here that we're not acknowledging unfortunately true all right anyway all right thank you <laughs> well you no you cut to the quick so yep well let's hold on, but hold on we'll come back megan what about you what do you normally read and what is your there was a period of time when i was having a long commute for work and i was reading a lot of autobiographies by actors, but like comedians that were actors. So like Bob Newhart, Steve Martin. Um, but my, and even, even continued like even after that, after I, my community was stopped. So like Tina Fey, Kohler, uh, those type of things. But now my, um, my, I have an extensive collection of stories for two-year-olds. So that's pretty much what I read these days. And that's about it. Sounds good. All right, but do you have any opinions of romance before listening to this podcast? Um, so my mother-in-law, she that's the type of style that she reads. Um, I don't have a particular book or anything in mind when you know I think of the stuff she reads. I feel like it's you know she was she's a very avid reader. She reads every night before bed, and so she's gone through you know, hundreds and hundreds of romance novel books. Um, 
Well, that's that's like a it's like a pastime for her. It's like a hobby. So um, I don't have like an opinion either either way. It's not something that I tend to go to first. But thank you. So all right. So some things I want to clear up really fast before we kind of move on to talking specifically about Phil's podcast. But I wanted to say that oftentimes on the, we can maybe discuss this later, but last time on Phil's podcast, I, some of the sound was bad. So oftentimes I couldn't hear you, Phil. So I felt like sometimes I wasn't responding to the things that you said, but, and so I apologize for that. And then I, and I specifically well, we'll talk about it later. Anyway, so let me open it up. Anybody have any questions to start or just general thoughts about the podcast that they want to talk about? I mean, I can edit this silence, but like somebody's got to talk. <laughs> okay, let's start with, oh, I think it is. it was partly a tricky conversation to like get to the bottom of Phil Wright's and reads and edits and teaches English and fiction. And so this, a conversation with someone else, there would perhaps be an ability to like suspend disbelief and read a book without only having absolute critique while reading it. Um, and so that I just thought that was, you know, that's just an aspect of listening to it that is a part of the conversation. Not that it's bad or faulted or a challenge. It's just part of the conversation. Anybody else? Mara, Megan? Did anything surprise you about the podcast? I guess, first of all, we'll ask. My voice isn't as high as I always think it like, is. <laughs> See, like, it's the opposite. Like, in my head, I have like a really high voice and it annoys me, but I don't change it. And then when I hear it and it actually sounds okay, it just sounds sort of like my father, but nasally. Um, and I can live with that. I think there's actually a thing. There's like a an explanation for why that is. I mean, I for unfortunately for me it doesn't work. I sound nasally and high pitched regardless. I don't think you're getting like the clear like bell at the bottom of your voice. Like I think and I think it's bone resonance, isn't it? Meeks, is it because it's going through our bones yeah. and our like skull when we hear ourselves? I'm super impressed that you called me out on that and I have no idea. Um, <laughs> I, and I you're literally right. ask the people I know who know stuff about that stuff. So yeah, that, there are but... multiple sinuses uh, within the skull, and you know you don't necessarily need them to breathe, but that helps with your pitch and the sound of your voice. More information than I had. This is why we have experts on the panel. <laughs> right. All right. So, okay, I'll move on. Well, so I was going to say, in, in response to your question, is that I can't say that there's anything that surprised me, but that uh, things that I was not surprised by. And it's just Phil's ability to um, be unfiltered and say whatever he thinks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When I was listening, I kind of, I was kind of wondering, Phil, why do you think women read romance novels? Oh, to, to like to pass time, like to go through a narrative and mark the relation between you know, a character's experience of something and the decisions that they make. And then your sort of corollary imagined self going through that same thing, the gaps, you know, create tension and then double when there's a tension in the narrative. I mean, like you experience anything that you're reading and, uh, and you have a varied degree of like empathy with the protagonist and you're like, you know, 
you experience schadenfreude and you experience oh you idiot and you experience oh my god like i can't believe that they pulled that off and then and then it's over and then you know you walk up the subway steps i can always believe that they pulled it off because romance novels are incredibly predictable and i'm not saying that is a bad thing i'm just saying that's how it is one of the things about romance novels is when you pick that book up you're, you don't have to worry. Oh no, are they going to get together? I don't know. <laughs> you know. It's that's not a question you're asking. Like, oh gee, I really hope these two make it work. You know. Um, and I don't know. I was just kind of curious because, like, when I was listening to your conversation, I was kind of like, I don't think Phil knows why we read romance novels. Like, maybe maybe I'm wrong. I think Tara was trying to teach me, and I wasn't understanding because I'm <laughs> coaching it like an English teacher or something. I don't know. <laughs> or like a writer i would think one or the other perspective would be useful though as either a writer or a teacher of literature but i don't know well yeah i mean i think that's what i'm always trying to get across is that i don't i think that the things guys don't like about romance are the things women do like about romance so that predictability is not a cause for contempt in romance i mean that's the reason we read it right and it's not Wait, was I calling Cole to task for being predictable? I think I understood the genre conventions well enough to not dock points there. I no, don't I don't even think you called it predictable. I called mm. it predictable. And that's mm. one of the comforting things about reading a, a romance novel because you don't have to worry about how it's going to end or what's going to happen. You can put it down at any point because we're not ending chapters on cliffhangers, frankly. Right. <laughs> I just, I know. One of the things you did say, Phil, was that the interiority was repetitive. And like, that's part of it too. Like it's, they're written for generally women, not specifically, but I mean, most of the women, mostly women read them and women are busy. So like, I feel like the genre is something that has adapted to the way women read and they don't have the kind of the time. Anyway, that's what I'm saying. It's just- Oh, re-immerse yourself. You don't want to re-immerse yourself. You want to put on track three and play it through track seven. Right, sure. Okay. Um, I think I, okay. Yeah, sure. All right. Well, this is very interesting. I never realized that, you know, between sexes, I mean, I know that you're doing this podcast because of the, the differences in um, interest between the sexes, but I don't think I ever realized that, like, it could potentially be a matter of what's going on in the brain itself between men and women. So I know, you know, from the scientific background that men have, you know, more gray matter than women and women have more white matter than, than men. But not to get too, too scientific, that really morphs how a person's different. So, like, a, a, a you know, you, you talk to a man and they can only focus on one task at a time. So if they're watching TV, you can't expect them to answer their questions. But that has to do with the structure of the brain. Um, and so I never really thought about that as why, you know, um, men could foresee even like the whole the structure of a romance novel, how they could perceive that as, you know, even something different compared to a woman so that's that's kind of enlightening to me i really enjoyed thinking about that perspective i haven't thought about that before but mm -hmm. I, I i i don't know that's something to think about it's like why is uh men's that the genre is geared towards men so incredibly different than the genre is geared towards women um i'm too tired Wait, are we saying are we submitting that sci-fi is more like for men i mean we can <laughs> right we're all going to keep talking about butler and um oh uh 
I even Slanzuski and there's one other that I would think of. Actually, Shelley. Shelley invented science fiction. So a woman invented science fiction. I I enjoyed I don't I don't read a lot of science fiction, but I love watching science fiction. I love it. I love it. I'm a big Doctor Who fan. Nice. Did you watch Did you watch the Christmas special? I no. I don't have like I'm, I'm the BBC, so I have to wait until they're on um, HBO to watch oh. them. This might be on something with that sci-fi thing. So, like, I know going back to the like the brains and stuff like that. So, men have a fear of failure, and men have a fear of abandonment. Just like kind of going back to those like the way the brains work and things like that. So maybe that is why like men t- tend to go more towards sci-fi because right those storylines are does the main character uh, win or lose and you know romance novels you know does the female you know get the fulfillment or does she get abandoned? These are these are very interesting points. Maybe this might be too deep for Sunday. No. It's also considered, like, I feel like um, security is really important in romance novels. Like, sometimes I wonder, I'm not into the whole billionaire genre. That's not, I'm just not into it. I can't relate. I don't want to be with a billionaire. I think it's gross. If if you're a billionaire, you're not a good person. It just, you can't be a billionaire and a good person. So that's not my personal fantasy. But it is so often because I think women do associate, uh, you know, the financial status with being safe and with being secure. And that's interesting to think about. Whereas a lot of male-dominated literature might be more about adventure and risk. But it's, yeah, it's interesting to look at it like that. Like we're just looking at in different things. I want my books to be less adventurous because I'm not reading for an adventure. I'm reading for an escape and to slow down a little bit and to stop thinking about things. So you, I, I like you know, romance, because it is easy. And you you do kind of start, if it's a good romance, you start caring about the, the characters and the relationship between them. And it's just easy to read. And you know, it's going to turn out okay. You know, there's no horrible cliffhangers, at least not in the books I read, because I just I'm not up to that, frankly. I'm tired. I work. I have girls like I am tired. And I'm too sensitive and emotional for that stuff. I, I love like light, not light reading, but it's the same thing with movies I watch and shows that I watch. I just, I don't even, I don't read thrillers. I don't watch thrillers. I don't like that feeling. And then on this note about the male and female brain, even within an author, when there are like a couple series where I'm like, I really like it when it's in the fantasy realm, Octavia Butler, for example. And then when it gets more into the science fiction and there's just more tension and it's, it's less comfortable and less pleasant. And I like, can't even get through those ones. But then when it's in this like, with more magic then i enjoy it like she wrote what was intended to be a trilogy um but, but they're out of order so well, i started when they're like in africa and coming to the south so that is the kindred series, but then when they skip to like the 1970s and it's like grimy and they're in la i and then it's getting more they're like uh doing like genetic manipulation then i don't like it anymore i want to say freeform did the adaptation but i haven't seen it i don't know i haven't seen it yeah I mean, Butler is very interesting because this idea of the wedding of sort of feminist and matriarchal sensibilities being central. I mean, Charlotte Perkins Gilman's Hill, Herland, um, sort of which explores this alternate world without men and is, strictly speaking, science fiction. So Butler would say, 
you know, in, our, in the future, like we'll all be saved by a woman who has children, yes, but who's also a geneticist, yes, but who also believes in this religion, which is about Gaia. You see what I mean? Like, so that, that in fact, the woman is the magical technology, right? Or it prefigures all, all technology, which is in effect magical because all creative technology is centrally feminist, at least at the thematic level for Butler. Which I think works again, because to my, you know, for our previous conversation, like you go to the family reunion, yeah, maybe like grandpa picks mm. what you're going to eat and pays for it and tells people, you know, what order to eat in or, you know, to shut up or whatever. But when people go to show their kids off, when people go to ask whether they should buy a house here or whether they should buy it where they went to school, they go sit at their grandmother's knee and ask her because that's where the sort of received wisdom of the community has been and is passed down because at a very deep level, none of us know who our fathers are. Everyone knows who their mother is. Honey, is that what you thought about the book? Oh, that tracks. I mean, I never got to the end of the series. I got lost when it got more science fiction. The thing that bothers me about science yes. is, uh, <laughs> is yeah, sorry. Uh, so romance outsells science fiction. Like, I mean, it's a lot. And yet when you go into a bookstore, romance is like one, always like one shelf. And then you've got science fiction, or like not like one single shelf, but like one row of shelves. And then science fiction is like, a ton because it's for dudes and i like science fiction but it makes me angry and those are my thoughts as uh as a romance wait person. but isn't it so, i always thought that like romance was the best to break in the best to get high sales numbers specifically because there's perpetual turnover of the stock that larry niven finished Ringworld in like 86 and i guarantee you it's on the shelves of every barnes and noble across the country moreover in the next two months they're going to sell the five copies they have of it like they just are because it's like it's canonic is there a romance canon well i mean there's outlander which has been selling for a long time yeah there's i mean there's some i mean like I they mean, said like shelly was like shelly started this in the 19th century right like but, but, Vern, but, i mean that's not that's, that's, that's kind of units yo like Jane Austen started romance. I mean, romance anymore. Austen is high literature. Sure. It's it's neither here nor there because we're not talking about time. We're talking about space. I mean, we're talking about the space on the shelves. Like, Mansfield Park does a better job with the slave trade than than Cole does. Facts. Okay. All right. And we're not talking about quality of anything. I'm talking simply about the fact that romance outsells science fiction by some astronomical number. But what's the rip? Science fiction the rip? Like, has more shelves. The estate of Larry Niven is, is like building a gravity elevator right now. Is that maybe too, like what you're saying? Is like, so I'm just, again, I'm just going back to like the science of the brain. It's like, do women tend to read more and men tend to watch movies more? And that would explain. Yeah. We also reread stuff. Ask me how many times I've read, you know, the Ender Quintet. Ask me how many times I've read Werner Vinge's duology. Like, I should read, I should reread it right now. The dogs talk together and these like I've never reread anything. neural webs that <laughs> like the pack thinks is one. So he comes up with this language. So like five dogs talk together with the consciousness of like one primate. And then depending upon who dies next, they reconstitute their identities in this way that we'll probably do neural mapping someday. 
I don't know. Like, if you can write three books and they're going to sell 100,000 copies every year for 50 years, wouldn't you rather do that than to sell 1 million, like, over two years and then have to write another one? I mean, shit. I mean, both are fine. All I'm saying is that why is more physical space because of everything in a I just bookstore? Said. I answered the question before, like, but, because but, of everything I just said, because there's a canon, because it's assigned in classes, because it, but, it like, you can point like, somebody. Okay, wait, 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 wait. So I don't have anything like Phil's advanced degrees, but like. You literally have the same simplify the same school as me, Gina Bean. I am I am I am nowhere I was not on the 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 intellectual side of that they basically (laughs) taught me how to take shorthand uh, an experience for which I'm very grateful but nevertheless (laughs) like the notion of of a canon is you know in the first place uh, like self-referential in a way that I feel like is hyper masculine right the idea of codifying who, who and what is going to set our, our norm and then carrying that forward is obviously an intense form of structural power that has always been held in the hands of men, primarily white men, right? Two, like, so is analyzing how people spend capital. Like, women couldn't have bank accounts in some states in this country until the late 1970s. No one's, you know, in the early 2000s, it was a revelation that women were independently spending their money on things. And if marketers could just start to notice where women, you know, opened their pocketbooks, because even talking about it is gendered in 1950s terms, then there might be more money to be made, right? So, like, the way women spend cash and and what we what we want when spoken with like the terms of capital in our hyper capitalist economy is not nearly as legible for like the same structural reasons as the way that men spend money and i think that's why the shelves are full of science fiction books and romance novels are all bought on the internet i'm sure it did a number of you know where are all those sales happening right if they're not happening in bookstores they're happening somewhere else and there's a bunch of people missing out but because we don't care about how women spend money for reasons of entrenched structural power we're not going to acknowledge it i love that gina there's that. Love too. it. Wow. I just listened to an interview with and Lisa Mars right for this. You can add that is what she's talking about of just like who's not getting published. No one is no one is getting published. Like there aren't enough trans people, there aren't enough black people, there aren't enough other people of color. It's not those people aren't getting they're writing books, but they're not getting published. And so the market is there and the space is there. It's just not they're not being moved into the Right. And I will say that romance, I mean, yes, those people aren't getting published enough, but I will say in romance, some people, some of those people are getting published. Like there's a whole, Harlequin has a whole imprint now that's just for LGBTQIA2S plus community. So they're trying, romance at least is trying, but that's neither. Well, I think that is part of the conversation. I think that there is a place that, that that, aspect of literature of publishing is making space for all of the people i didn't know obviously as a non-reader of romance i've already been added um but like i didn't know anything about Alyssa cole so when i googled her listening to the episode the first titles that came up were her queer romances Mm -hmm. and i was like oh that's interesting um which i also have not read but i'd be really really curious what like this conversation about one of well or the conversation you had with phil about one right. of those well books, and those ones are about too. black royalty but, as well which is like in her words at some point she was like she thought that like black american women should be able to have a fantasy about what it is to be royalty which is important part of, of what she's done so so 
I, I do want to add on to what Mara and Gina said by saying to Mara's point about Austin. I mean, if we take Austin and the Bronte sisters and reclassify them as romance, then all of a sudden that's a lot of sales and a lot of money and a lot of, well, I mean, I mean, I guess even Dickens is out, is, is not, doesn't have an estate, but I mean, the amount of money that Shelley lost out on it, for instance, um, in the early 19th century, the idea that if somehow the canon were expanded backwards and reclassified for some of those authors, you know, the Bronte sisters would be among the best-selling romance authors. Jane Austen would be among the best romance authors, best-selling authors right. ever. Sure. I mean, Jane Austen still, I mean, there are like 1 million Pride and Prejudice retellings. I mean, it's, she's it. Yeah, many right. of her books are still being remade, and I watch and read a lot of them. <laughs> Derivative rights is a form of capital. There's, we could just go yep. on and on. <laughs> Real. <laughs> All right, that was awesome. So, okay, I have a whole long list. Yeah, of go with questions. Here. Ask us things. Uh, go. Well, they're not, oh, they're not ideas. Questions. Okay. All right. <laughs> ideas. Okay. So, uh, Phil, one of the things that you didn't think the people in the book, they were falling in love or like they didn't come to a deep level of understanding about each other. Yep. And I guess I was trying to, and we can discuss then, like, what is it that it kind of what did you need them to talk about or be to each other to kind of make that more believable to you? And anybody can can talk about this. Like if they felt like, because you guys, you all didn't read. I mean, is it too early to take it back to Thomas Hardy and talk about Tess of the Durbervilles? Like, I, I don't know. There's almost any, or Austin, the way that, the way that the people see each other in different contexts, like in, in Austin, right? And you get the interior monologue and it's, this degree of social pressure is being exerted and you get this response. It manifests externally in the character this way, but it's guarded because of these very specific reasons that go back along this very specific narrative that's entwined with this very specific like code of conduct associated with this class and altitude. And all of that complicated calculus is the sort of thing that we carry with ourselves when we're scared at a school dance or we're trying to figure out like whether to talk to the middle manager now at the holiday party and the way that it translates to that interface between like interiority and and the presentation of self it's so believable and so trackable and it's as though you can summon the conscience and the consciousness rather um and interiority of the bennett sisters of you know um fanny it, it doesn't matter um or jane Eyre, right like I mean, certainly we could talk about, you know, other characters that aren't fleshed out for very specific, like racial and political and, you know, historiographical reasons. But man, like if I'm going to care about someone just falling in love, like not like a bigger thing than that, but like just falling in love and then, you know, digging the sex scene afterwards or whatever, I kind of need to know who they are and why they care about each other and 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 how it works so that that my identification with the characters can work and and my suspension of disbelief is well is never is never brought up it's sort of just been taken from me and i haven't i haven't realized that it's been done right like i simply believe in the world and that to me is the thing that i need if i'm going to care about somebody falling in love with somebody because i don't know like the way i like tell the narrative of my own one night stands to myself is very different than i tell the narrative of like you know the woman 
or whatever, like the like top three women I thought or think or could have conceived of being in love with at whatever time. Those are much more involved and much more doubting. And there's retreats and approaches and moments of like a lack of surety. Maybe that's what it is like that, that I can't empathize with someone who cares about someone and who is utterly, sh- I don't know, or, or I'm utterly sure of, or the implied narrator is utterly sure of. Maybe that's it. The implied narrator needs to be along with me in this sort of empathic mission. I don't know. I think I'm talking around it. I'm not getting to what I, sorry, Mara. Oh, I was thinking about what Mara was saying about the the genre convention of certainty, right? Being one of the things that keeps her reading romance. And I wonder if maybe you're just genre incompatible. If, you know, if, if Mara's genre convention holds for all romance and not just the ones she reads. And I would, I would like hazard a wager that her sample size is substantial. Um, so I'd be willing to assume that that is the case, right? Like maybe, maybe it's just missing something for Phil. It's missing something for me because I, I, the, which is why I'm not a, a great reader of romance, I think, because I put differently than what you said. I, I need more subtext with my text. And like, definitely when it comes to like sex scenes, it does nothing for me to, well, I don't read romance so much, but to listen to Tara's podcast where we decide who was it written by a man or written by a woman. Right. And it's always tremendously obvious to me because there's even less subtext in the one written by men. Yes. <laughs> That is the that is the point. <laughs> there is no emotion. There are no emotions at all involved in the, in the ones written by by men for the most. Part. Well, what if we go back to looking at romance as fantasy? Wouldn't it be amazing to be completely ridden of doubt mm-hmm. and insecurity and 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 anxiety about your partner and just I mean, isn't that what everyone wants to have that fate? is real isn't that what love is being sure of it i mean that's what you want it to be Uh, i mean that is like an absolute fantasy yeah because i don't (laughs) care how good my marriage is i am still a an an anxious person who sometimes worries that what if i'm not enough for him what if he's not enough for me you know do we really know each other you know is this going to be forever? I want it to be. The fantasy is, yes, it's forever. And that's why romance is great. Because you can you, they lead you to imagine, yes, this is forever. And you don't have to have those doubts. Um, I, I also look at romance. It's not a happily ever after. It's a happy beginning. We're seeing the beginning. So you're getting introduced to these characters. No, the that was something that I did appreciate you saying, Phil, was that you didn't see the actual emotional intimacy because they weren't together long enough. They didn't know each other long enough. But we're just seeing the beginning of the relationship and it's tied up at the end, but there's still a whole lot of stuff out there where you're like, oh, this couple exists in the world and they don't have any insecurities about the relationship. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> but, right, like the relationship functions as the thing in life that you don't have to be insecure or anxious yes. about. Like, Can you imagine how just much easier life would be if you could have zero insecurity? That terrifies, like everything you just said terrifies me, cut me to my soul and reminded me of what is the aphorism like familiarity breeds contempt, right? This idea that by getting that close to someone, they're going to start a list. And I'm not because I love them and I don't care what their flaws are. And that imbalance, yeah, that's that's what it is for me. It's I can't trust you. Like 
Well, and I think that you're saying what romance is. It is the, all of that. I don't know what the what the disconnect is, but like that's what romance novels want in their partners is somebody who is not going to care about all of the things. And in the, in that last podcast, you talked about like labor allocation and all the little things adding up, and that's true on a day to day basis. Like in a long relationship, like things are imbalanced sometimes, and like you're either going to carry that stuff all the way or you're gonna let it go when your time comes to like carry more of the weight and whatever but i think that what romance does is say what you're saying that this is okay we're going to be together regardless of, of these things so i think that we're all saying the, the same thing right that like the absence of having to wonder what it is i'm going to do to drive this person away they're just going to be there right that's that's romance I was also kind of surprised about what you said, Phil, about unconditional love. And it sounded to me like you believe that men can, you, you see women having less of a capacity for that as men? Is that Not towards their children. Well, yeah, no, not like, towards the children. But you think it's different between romantic partners? So my brother is a very successful man. He helps me whenever he can. And the dynamic is very much, you know, big brother and little brother. And he always says, you know, there may be a day when I can't help you. And I need you to understand that, you know, when you tell me that unconditional love is something that exists, I'm here to tell you that it doesn't. And the framing of it, as someone who has always been there for me, and who fears desperately not being able to be there for me, and knows he has to be there for his three kids and his wife, who stays at home, right? And he's got to deal with all of the whatever, wherever he is in one of the top three corporations in the world, which is always where he's invariably working. I know that what he means is he knows unconditional love exists and he doesn't know what he'll do if all of the people he loves unconditionally need him equally at the same time. And he's terrified who he'll leave off. And so what he said is unconditional love doesn't exist. But what he has done is he has exhibited unconditional love. He's illustrated like the very tensions that underlie the existence of unconditional love. So I guess what I would say is everyone is capable of unconditional love, maybe. I mean, I don't know. To pursue Mara's point, I guess, yeah, I am. A, a woman will cut you off like a limb. A man will hesitate, usually, unless the depth of the connection wasn't really there or he was distracted like a dog, like with a Frisbee. I mean, there are many like caveats that I would put with it, but as far as like, if I were to list the number of people that I think would die for me, I think there would be more men on the list. I'm curious about yeah. the sacrificial element as the standard of unconditional love. Or whether the worth of that, because we need to, because somebody in society needs to be willing to kill themselves for society. That's why we have adolescent men and we send them off to die in every human culture what, what that's I'm, ever existed. What I mean to ask is, there's probably other possibilities for what unconditional love could look like or how it's expressed. And not if I die, it isn't like, <laughs> are you serious? You can't be serious. Not if I die. I, I Now I'm lost. If you die, who, who's unconditional? I'm confused. What I mean is, is like, so you're in this position where you could give your life for someone else, or you could question first their well being and then your own, the whole, like, mask on yourself or whatever like paradigm in that situation how much do i care that you showed your unconditional love for me by whatever means you're about to illustrate if i'm dead if you picked yourself in that moment and now i'm dead like 
I don't know whether it matters very much whether there was some other means of exhibiting unconditionality. In that moment, no. But I, I can imagine that there's multiple other moments in which the question of what does unconditional love look like and how is it expressed might exist before that extreme. But maybe not. I'm sure that is in, in the Divorced Mom's Aphorisms book. But I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't have access to that. I'm not okay with boiling unconditional love down to just life and death situations because I feel like we as women especially spend every single day of our lives loving the people in our family day after day after day, no matter whether it's hard, no matter whether it's easy, you know. Um, and nobody notices when you half-ass it. I'm just saying, like, I just... <laughs> We don't feel the coldness in that hug on the days when we're taxing you. We don't notice at all. And in fact, it doesn't fill us with the quailing, petrifying fear that in fact, mama doesn't love us. Mama is just putting on a mask. Mama is just going through the motions. We should go to our room and play video games quietly. I mean, you're you're supposing that men don't wear masks. No, I mean, like, I'm, it, I'm not saying the, what I'm saying is, is that I mean, we can hedge it like a million ways. And I feel like we're heading towards this conversation where it's like women are putting up with a lot of small annoyances. And I'm like, men are producing less spree killers. We've been working on it. Like, <laughs> Sounds good. But oh, this one's actually going up. bad, isn't it? I thought the other one was going bad, but this one's actually going bad. You know, it's all very good. The magic is in the editing. Well, how, speaking of editing, how did you feel about the way it was edited? Could you, like, do you have any thoughts about that? I mean, I'm glad that you took out anything that was, like, embarrassing. So, okay, does anybody have any anything other thoughts about Phil's podcast before I talk about what I did cut? I really enjoyed it, Phil, obviously. Did you really? Of course. I mean, it came together, but I didn't know. Again, I never know if I'm pissing people off. You kept sending those cryptic messages about ducks. <laughs> Wait, and I enjoyed it too. Like, I enjoyed listening to it. I listened to it twice. Yeah, I did enjoy it. I did enjoy it. I did. All right. So, Phil, yes, I cut out, but I really hated to cut out because I loved it was Phil brought a pepperoni roll and it was the largest pepperoni roll I have ever seen. How is that not perfect for a romance podcast? I mean, you could do a whole episode on that. <laughs> and I did like a whole like reveal of it, like moving through the frame. It was excellent. It was, it was excellent. It was. It was really lovely and made me hungry, but it just, it was hard to, to, it was just like more like a visual type of thing. So I did cut that. I'm sorry, Philly, because he made a lot of effort. It was so I apologize. Well, and this is where being West, all of us. Well, no, I just mean the pepperoni roll really brings us together as West Virginians. I think so. I didn't know they had them in New Jersey. Yeah, they don't even know that they are. Like, they think <laughs> they're like sauceless trombolis or something. Wait, I don't mean know. a calzone? Oh, it's a stromboli. <laughs> no, it. I have a I have a picture of yeah. the sign. It says pepperoni. Is there Wait, sauce inside? It says pepperoni and mozzarella roll. Mm. Only... There are two slits in the whole thing, one at either end, because it's three feet long. You can't bake <laughs> something with an interior and an exterior that's three feet long without putting some slits in the dough. Anyway, on to the next question. <laughs> Wait, that was so Schmidt. Oh, my Lord. Okay, go on. <laughs> is is Richard, Nick, and Phil a Schmidt? I don't know. 
Wait, yeah. What's Richard like? What? And by the way, do you call him Richard? I've never heard anybody call yes, him anything. Of because Dick. I refuse to call him Dick. His name is Richard. I've known him since fourth grade. I've never called him anything but Dick. So, I mean, I call him Herndon. I call you all by your last name. So, did you call him Dick all the way from freshman year? Yeah, I mean, Miller introduced us. We were like in the upstairs hallway. He was like, "This is Dick," and I was like, "Really?" He was like, "Yep, it's my name." Like, and I was like, I just rolled with it from ninth grade on. Dick. Whoa. I called yeah. him Richard. Really? Jaeger called him Dick. BFF I club. called him Dick. Stockton calls him Dick. There's I don't like know. There's a male-female divide here, I'm noticing. There's a gender yeah. differential on which name is getting used. Well, maybe I just never hung out with girls and Dick at the same time. Is that possible? <laughs> here is, right? This is, here we are. Here we are. Sorry. All right. All right. <laughs> All right. Okay. Another thing I cut was me being wrong about um, James Frey or James Salter. The sex scene quote, um, one of the authors was James Salter. Phil said he was a J- Pat Conroy-esque person. And I said, I thought it was James Frey. We had the whole, whole thing. Phil was actually right. Uh, I was very wrong. Uh, so I cut that. Um, <laughs> Love that you cut that. Power of censorship. <laughs> <laughs> That's what happens when you're one note up in the hierarchy, you see. Um, I cut out Phil's elitist Kenyan bullying chant at a game that he... At Denizen Games? Yes. I cut that. Fuck Denizen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I cut out, oh, cut out a bunch of Phil trying to find the audible part with where we were trying to figure out how to pronounce the female characters. Oh, you got the good, you got the right yeah, part though. I did. It's fine. I cut it's out. It's funny to me that you cut the, uh, cut to the right clip from the audible. Cause as I was listening, I was like, damn, he had that ready fast. <laughs> yeah. I was also impressed. I was like, oh, that was lucky. No, that we listened for like two minutes or something. Like. <laughs> Just waiting for the name, right? Just the name. Well, I was impressed that you knew like what chapter to go to in the first place. But anyway, then I it was a really good edit. You have to. Oh, thanks. Like I don't ask you listen? ask yeah. any writer. Like after it goes to the editor and I look at it and I'm like, okay, then it's dead to me. I don't care. Publish it. Put it you, out. You there. can't like, care I'm past that it. point. No, I am. My editor will send things back to me. Like make give this the the last pass or whatever. And, and are you like, like no? I just, I don't give a shit. I'm not reading this. Yeah. I'm not, I don't want to read it ever. Make it go away. Make it go yeah. away. Anyway. I'm not calling any of those people. I'm not looking at that fucking first paragraph again. Fucking publish uh, yeah. it. Get it away from my face. Yes. Have you published anything lately? A book review in 2015. Is that right? But he has a forthcoming right. essay for Guernica in the works. I did um, work on that today. Amazing. So it's about West Virginia. Fun. Awesome, guys. Any other thoughts? Phil, did you have any, after the podcast, did you, and after you listened to it, what were, did you have any different thoughts about the book or romance or? I don't like, I don't like that this thing seems intractable. But then again, I also feel like Jared Kushner being like, but this Israeli-Palestinian thing. Like, surely we can work something out. <laughs> Like, um, like, I don't know. It just, it shouldn't, like, I just don't believe in gender essentialism that way. Like, I just, I just 
don't better. And I, I don't want to present myself as, as you said, as not being a romantic because I totally am. But I also, you know, a lot of people die in them movies. You know what I mean? Like, like, like if you, if you, instead of saying we're going to be practical and we're just going to do things in a way that seems defensible in a court and amenable in a contractual sense, if instead we dispense with some of those things and we want to retreat to this world of like deeper blood bonds and a union that's based on the immaterial and the impractical, I mean, it's just as, it's just as risky as anything else. So like neither am I presenting some ideal nor am I like sitting off in this corner, like just stewing all the time. Like, but like, I really, I really hesitate to call my girlfriend, my girlfriend. And I really hesitate to, um, you know, approach that idea of a dyad again by virtue of that idea of of bonding on that level being. I'm not that it is imperfect, but that but that it represents, you know, yet another incomplete, unsure I mean, as all human things are. I don't know what I'm saying here. All I'm saying is is that I'm not entirely pessimistic. I'm not entirely optimistic. And even though things will be livable and functional going forward, I think that we do, we are maybe sacrificing something as we move forward, however communicative we are, however realistic we are, when we say there isn't a special magic to people who've been married for 60 years, because I think that there is, and I think that it's a worthwhile magic, and I think it's a beautiful, probably worth a great deal of sacrifice and a great deal of overlooking each other's flaws and mutual destructiveness and codependency and who even knows what kinds of things because at the end of the day that artifact of like wow we said many things we did many things but we never walked away and that means something i don't know i think that that means something rather than we were very rational about it we split up our time and it was much more efficient we were both so happy i don't think i can look at my son and say this is true both your mother and i are happier now he doesn't give a fuck about that nor does the idea of love, nor does that piece of ourselves that died with the union. And that was worth something, however practical and happy and whatever, you know, we are after the fact, like, I don't know, I think you have to give up something. And I think that that's okay. And, and to say that, you know, not giving up as much has some sort of nobility to it, it doesn't have nobility it has fucking pragmatism. That's kind of a low tool making as aspect of humanity as far as I'm concerned. Is there magic to, I mean, I guess we'll never know. I mean, I will never know, but then amazing, please. The last thing we can do is tell me that you all love romance. We love romance. Love romance. <laughs> we love it. <laughs> we do. We should have so tried this before. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's all been loose on my part. I should have said all together, Say, I love romance. All right, we'll try it again. <laughs> Please tell me that you all love romance. I love romance. I love romance. You guys are really terrible at this. I mean, I just, I've never, I've just, it's really, it's incredible. <laughs> Megan, do you love romance? I love romance. <laughs> all right.